You're listening to the Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Perch Pod. As usual, I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm your host. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. I'm really excited about this week's episode because joining us is Stephen Nagy. Stephen is a Canadian from Calgary. He's also a distinguished fellow at Canada's Asia-Pacific Foundation and a senior associate professor in the Department of Politics and International Studies at the International Christian University in Tokyo. Uh, On the podcast, we talk about Japan, and Japan is a pretty inscrutable country from the outside and one that I think is going to be increasingly more important in geopolitical affairs and in affairs in the Indo-Pacific. This is true in general in international politics, where folks tend to rely on stereotypes or things that they learned in history to understand a country. I think in the English-speaking world, and especially in the United States, this is doubly so for Japan. That's why I was so excited that Stephen came on, because he really does have a keener eye and has spent a lot of years thinking about Japan, living in Japan, and can give us a fuller perspective as we dive deeper into this extremely important country. Um, Folks, thank you so much for rating and commenting on the podcast. We're up to 56 ratings, and I promised my producers at Audiographies that we'd get to 75 by the end of the month. So if you haven't done so yet, please um, rate the podcast five stars or however many stars you want, wherever it is you listen to podcasts. Get your friends to do it too. They don't even have to listen to it. Every rating helps for us. Otherwise, all the usual stuff applies. Write to us at info at perchperspectives.com if you want to talk about what you had for breakfast or what you thought about this podcast, or hopefully what geopolitical services Perch Perspectives might be able to do for you or for your company or someone that you know. Okay, without any further ado, let's get to Stephen. Cheers, y'all. All right, Stephen. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this podcast. I've been looking forward to this for months. We've been circling each other and trying to find ways to work together. And uh, finally, we've got you on the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, it's a great way to start uh, 2021 and and I think a positive uh, year ahead. So thanks very much for having me, Jacob. And uh, of course, and and one of the reasons I'm so interested to have you on is that um, I find Japan an inscrutable country when it comes to geopolitics. It's incredibly hard to understand. Um, and I don't mean that in the sort of stereotypical way where everybody says, you know, the Japanese love contradictions and everything is anything in Japan. I, I just mean that as somebody who does geopolitical analysis for a living, uh, it's sometimes hard to parse what the Japanese government is doing and why it's doing it. And you've been doing this now for decades. D- do you still have any of that lingering inscrutability or do you feel like it's fairly clear once you've rolled up your sleeves and gotten down into it? Well, I, I think it would be arrogant to say that there's not questions, you know, there's there's not questions about what the Japanese are thinking and what they're doing. But I think, you know, it's pretty clear that um, Japan needs to balance its economic partnership with China and its engagement in the broader Indo-Pacific and its security partnership with the United States. And that security partnership is not just a security partnership. It's seven decades of institutions and people and presidents and prime ministers and parties working together. And I mean, it's, you know, I call it a comprehensive relationship, not just a security partnership, but it's that balance. How do you continue to integrate within the region? How do you create a, 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 
you know, a, a presence within the Indo-Pacific such that it can balance the grandness of China. And I think China's uh, growing uh, penchant for revisionist regional behavior, um, at the same time, um, engage with that China, right? And we've seen Japan do that through the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, um, probably moving forward on a trilateral uh, free trade agreement between South Korea, China, and Japan. Um, and uh, other relations. So Japan just can't have a zero-sum approach to its geopolitical calculations within the region, and that's why I think it's a bit difficult to read its its behavior um, if you're just looking at it at a superficial level. Mm -hmm. Do you think that, um, and you say zero-sum, I mean, I'm automatically thinking of Australia, which seems to be taking a much more hardline stance on China and is willing to stomach some of the economic pain that comes as a result of that. They might have thought that that was coming anyway. South Korea does its own thing with China as well. The The first question I really wanted to throw at you was, do, do you see Japan acting especially more independently of the United States going forward in the next couple of years? And if so, or if not, how do you feel that's going to affect Japanese domestic politics, especially as we go into election season here in Japan? Well, I think that we've seen Japan step up to the plate over the past 10 years, in particular under former Prime Minister Abe's um, administration. And this was for several reasons. First, I think that um, Japan, again, was, was thinking about how to uh, continue to engage within the region and balance uh, growing revisionism by China, but also develop some kind of positive relationship. You know, Japan can't change its neighbors, which means it has to find a way to engage with China. At the same time, it has to find a way to shape Japan, uh, China's behavior um, over decades. And I think that is really the, the long-term view, is how to shape um, the bilateral relations uh, over decades so that it's more positive uh, and rules-based. Now, is it moving more independently? I think it, the answer is clearly yes, uh, but that doesn't mean that it's delinking or decoupling from the U.S.-Japan uh, relationship. And what I mean by moving more independently is that, um, you know, in particular under the Trump administration, um, that Japan has uh, had growing concerns about uh, abandonment, has growing concerns about the hardline, you know, Trumpian, Pompeo ideological approach to uh, China, uh, calling out the Communist Party of China, um, and you know, this hard hardline decoupling approach to its. Uh, uh, foreign policies towards China, and, and Japan just can't make that choice. So what it's done is it's started to develop um, and strengthen uh, what we call strategic partnerships. Uh, the latest one, of course, was the uh, defense treaty between Australia and Japan, where uh, Japan and Australia have agreed to what we call re reciprocal access. It's a re reciprocal access agreement where Australian and Japanese troops can train on each other's uh, sovereign ter territory, which I think is a very, very significant agreement. Um, but Japan's also working with other partners, such as India, Vietnam. We shouldn't forget the EU. Uh, Japan signed the uh, Japan-EU uh, Economic Partnership Agreement, but as well as the Japan-EU um, Asian in Infrastructure and Connectivity Agreement. And these are all demonstrations of this willingness to go out and um, engage in multilateral partnerships and bilateral partnerships, which are meant to, you know, focus on rules-based behavior in the, in the in the region, not just in terms of the economic domain, but also to try and buttress uh, that rules-based behavior in the maritime domain. And that's where I think initiatives such as the free and open and Indo-Pacific vision are, are really uh, critical to how Japan views its position um, within the region moving forward. I want to I want to hit on the word revisionism because you've used the word a couple times now. Um, and I just want to define it a little bit a little bit more clearly, I guess, for listeners. So when you say that 
Japan or the countries in the region in general need to worry about Chinese revisionism? What specifically are, are, do you think that Japan is worried about when, it, when, when you're using that phrase? Well, I think that what we've seen over the past 10 years is China tried to reshape the maritime environment uh, in its favor. Um, I think that the initial um, impetus for these changes started back in the early 1990s with um, Taiwan, you know, Taiwan holding an independent election. We saw uh, Chinese do uh, weapon testing or missile testing in the Straits of Taiwan. And of course, under the Clinton administration, um, two aircraft carrier groups uh, sailed through the Straits of Taiwan to send the strongest message to uh, the Chinese that their, this behavior would be unacceptable. The learning lesson from the Chinese, uh, from uh, from that experience is that they need to reshape their uh, peripheral environment so, such that um, they can keep the United States out and uh, that they can have free access into to the Pacific. And what they've done is they've created uh, many kinds of asymmetric capabilities to, I think, uh, broadly achieve that objective. And I think the first one is, of course, the uh, anti-access, anti-denial uh, missile systems, which basically raise the cost for the United States to uh, repeat that experience um, of sending two aircraft carrier groups through the Taiwanese Straits. Uh, we've seen um, the Chinese build artificial islands and militarize those islands in, in the South China Sea in an attempt to try and establish facts on the, on the ground or facts in the, in the sea. And we've seen uh, a very proactive uh, attempt to attempt, a successful attempt to fracture ASEAN unity. So it doesn't work in, in the way it should be to solve um, regional issues. That's through consensus-based decision making within amongst ASEAN members. So what we see in the East China Sea area is, is China actively reshape um, the security environment. Uh, towards uh, the United States and, of course, Japan. Uh, in the South China Sea, we've seen uh, you know, establishing facts on the ground. And even on the Himalayan Plateau, we've seen um, most recently in May 2020, uh, the Chinese and the Indians have a, a, a bust up. I'm not sure what we want to call it because there were spikes and clubs with, spe uh, uh, clubs with, with um, um, spikes on them. Um, but really pushing the boundaries of its peripheral environment um, during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, which really strongly suggests that they're uh, trying to reshape, again, the regional environment so that it, 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 it supports um, some of China's core interests, which is really territorial integrity um, as number, first and foremost, in terms of their core interests. Um, yeah, as it, as regards the India-China China stuff, the, the first thing that came to my mind for some reason was that the first rule of Fight Club is that we don't talk about Fight Club, but we will we will get to India in a second. Um, I guess that one of the ways when I'm thinking about the Asia-Pacific in general, of course, is that the original revisionist in the region is Japan. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I think it's, um, I've struggled with whether Japan is um, an indicator of what China's future might be. And you can make the argument multiple cases, but to me, the one that is most disturbing is the fact that the reason that Japan turned so militaristic at the beginning of the 20th century was because that it was dependent on foreign inputs for its industry, which is still true today. It's why Japan relies so much on the global trading order and why the liberal international order is not just lip service for Japan. They depend on it. Their livelihood is dependent on it. China really wasn't that way for most of its history. It didn't have to import the things that it needed for the Chinese people to have good lives that they thought were great and stable and, and harmonious or whatever word you want to throw in there. That's really not true anymore. And it hasn't been true roughly since the 80s and 90s. And you see China going out and needing to secure access to more land to grow food, 
or needing to secure access to you know things like lithium in Argentina or needing oil from the Middle East. Um, how far would you play the sort of Japan in the first half of the 20th century comparison to what behavior we're seeing out of China today? Well, I think the parallels are really, really interesting. When we think about Japan's modernization period in the Meiji period, it, it, it's, it sent out its ships to Southeast Asia, right, to secure natural resources. And of course, during the imperial era, it doubled down on this and it occupied uh, large swaths of, 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 of China, of course, and, and Southeast Asia to secure uh, forestry resources, other energy resources, and you know, try to, to try and dominate those sea lanes of communication. And in this sense, I think there, there are par parallels with, with China um, in, in terms of how China is building um, uh, a, a naval presence and a maritime presence so that it can at least have some control of um, sea lanes of communication to ensure that exports can continue to be exported abroad, but importantly, imports uh, of uh, natural uh, resources, energy resources, and as you said, those special materials that um, go into a lot of the things that um, China is producing, whether it's lithium or otherwise. Um, I think the major difference is, is that uh, Japan, you know, has been, and I think it's always been a maritime power, um, and it didn't have the continental aspects to, to its economy uh, to um, give it different choices. And what we see is, is China does have, it's a continental power, and it's using that continental uh, size, as well as access to um, build uh, and integrate itself into a Eurasian uh, economy through the Belt Road Initiative, um, those five land corridors, and of course there's a, there's a maritime corridor as well. And these are meant to um, bring alternatives to, uh, to China in terms of bringing in resources, uh, to exporting resources, um, and that includes energy resources. And if we look at uh, China's strategy moving forward, you know, they're building um, uh, rail and uh, other transport links through the China-Pakistan economic corridor, and this is meant to give it direct access to uh, to uh, 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 an open uh, to the sea to allow for energy resources to be imported back into China. We see uh, transport corridors through Southeast Asia to do the same same thing to avoid the Malacca dilemma, to avoid uh, you know those critical choke points that the United States controls now um, between Singapore and Indonesia. Um, as well as to avoid uh, you know, a potential choke point in the South China Sea. So um, I think there's some parallels between Japan and China, but I think that China has many more options in terms of how it can uh, secure energy resources and other resources to keep its economy uh, growing uh, for the, the near to midterm. Would you say that that makes you more optimistic that China might find a more peaceful way to rise than Japan did in the first half of the 20th century? Or are you increasingly worried that that China is actually going to follow that Japanese path, even if it does have more continental resources at its disposal? Well, I think China's uh, uh, preference is to use its economy as a way to shape the behavior of neighboring states and states that it deems uh, critical to its security, as to its, 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 its national security, but also its economic security. And I think the Belt Road Initiative is probably um, representative of, of that strategy, right? Um, uh, building roads and infrastructure and ports with uh, countries throughout um, China's back backyard. It creates a kind of economic um, interdependence or dependence on the Chinese market, but it opens up the Chinese market to those countries so that they can export and, and bring capital back to their countries and improve their, the quality of their lives. 
But part and parcel of the, that relationship is that, um, you know, when there is political differences between uh, Beijing and uh, those neighbors, um, the economy will be used as a, a lever or leverage to pressure those, those countries to make different choices. And we've seen that recently in 2017 with the South Koreans after the installation of the, the terminal high altitude uh, defense missiles. Um, uh, and what we saw is the Chinese really uh, stopped tourism to South Korea, stopped the you know the boys' bands from coming to um, South Korea. And we saw other forms of informal um, economic coercion to try and shape um, South Korean behavior. Um, you mentioned at the onset of today's discussion of Australia. Australia's I think having a, a very very difficult time with China, um, and China's using its uh, economic relationship with with Australia to try and shape its behavior. Um, and, you know, my home country, Canada, we were experiencing this as well after the arrest of Miss Meng Wanzhou. And um, what we've seen is, uh, of course, the arrest of two Canadians, Michael Korvig and Michael Spavro. But uh, we've also seen um, our economic relations tumble with um, the really uh, uh, um, increased increased um, inspections on Canadian agricultural products coming into China, but also some of those products being banned. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to be careful because I can already feel myself drifting into China when the whole point of this is to talk about Japan. So let's put a bookend in, in China for now. I'm sure they'll come up a little bit later in the podcast. But I wanted to turn the page here and talk a little bit about um, Shinzo Abe because you know there was a major political transition in Japan this past year, an unexpected one. Um, in some sense, uh, I, I view Shinzo Abe as a bit of a tragic figure. Um, he certainly changed the way that Japanese politics works I think, but he never really got to do everything he promised or wanted to do. And right sort of when he was at the peak of his powers, his body fails him. Uh, and now you have Suga in there, who is this sort of placeholder until elections come in 2021, um, in October 2021. And I, I think there is a real question about whether Japan is going to go back to the topsy-turvy revolving door at the top sort of political dynamic that it had before Abe really um, you know, redefined the Japanese political map. Or whether Suga is the next in this sort of semi-dynasty of politicians who are going to go forward and are going to continue the same sorts of policies that Abe pioneered. So from where you're sitting, how does it feel to you? How do you view Abe and his time in office? And how do you view going forward you know, Suga's first couple months and, and where we're going as we get into the election here in Japan? Well, I think his legacy is needs to be kind of focused into his domestic legacy and his international legacy. And I think at the domestic front, it's mixed. Um, you know, he inherited an economy that was battered by the uh, 311 earthquake and tsunami, uh, by three years of, I think, uh, poor uh, governance by the DPJ. And um, he fundamentally shifted the direction of Japan's domestic economy, as well as, I think, its international reputation. Um, he did that through uh, quantitative easing and uh, devaluation of the yen, as well as some structural reform on, on the domestic economy. And, and it did... Um, you know, accrue uh, benefits and it did accrue growth and did accrue, I think, um, uh, you know, I think praise by the by domestic um, stakeholders as well as international stakeholders in terms of pushing Japan in a different direction. He adopted a so-called womanomics, and I think womanomics has had mixed success, but I think it it, it sent the right message to corporations in Japan and to um, the international community that Japan is interested in sh shaping and changing how it views uh, the place of women in its economy. 
Um, and I think that he. Some can you actually pause there and just explain a little bit more about because I, I think some of my listeners might not know, might not understand what a big deal that is. So just kind of break that apart. For us. Yeah. So, um, you know, Womenomics is really to try and bring more women into the Japanese economy to ensure that they're not just, um, you know, what we call them sakura or, or uh, cherry, ch um, cherry blossoms in the office, but rather, you know, they move up into management positions and upper manage management positions. And really that they um, take on a much greater role within the Japanese economy. And what we've seen is that more women are moving into management positions. We've seen more women um, working um, in the Japanese economy. And I think if I remember the figures right, um, about 72.9% of Japanese women are working in the economy. And that's above the OECD average, which I think is really significant. Um, but I think that really the, the, the inclusion of women in the economy um, has been in some ways half-hearted. And we've seen that um, over the past year in terms of COVID-19 um, and its impact on the economy is that really women have been the ones that have been um, uh, laid off first. Uh, women have been the, the, the workers that have uh, lost their jobs first uh, to ensure that uh, men remain the major breadwinner in terms of, of, of the breadwinners in Japan. And that says a lot that of, in terms of the institutionalization or the lack of institutionalization of these womenomic principles is that um, still corporate Japan and, and Japanese businesses in general see um, women as kind of placeholders or a place to, uh, they, they're, they, they're shock absorbers if there's an economic, economic downturn instead of, you know, real um, stakeholders and, and leaders in the economy. So I think that, um, again, on womenomics, uh, you know, the Abe legacy is, is somewhat mixed, um, it's positive in terms of, of highlighting the importance of women in the economy, but really the institutional and cultural changes haven't been adopted at a deeper level to ensure that women can remain a, a critical a part of, of the Japanese economy moving forward. Is it fair to say then in, that you know Abe has been dealing with a certain level of inertia in the Japanese system and that the reason that you would say that his overall sort of legacy is mixed is because while he did some really tangible things, to push Japan in a new direction and to be more, um, I would use the word aggressive on the international stage and to be more innovative at home in ways that maybe Japan wasn't willing to be, um, that, you know, that Abe really pushed it in that, in that direction, but he wasn't able to maybe change Japan fundamentally, or, or maybe as you were saying, some of the adoption of some of those reforms were more half-hearted. Is that a, a fair um, characterization of what you're saying, or am I going too far? Mm, I think that maybe you're going a bit far, uh, too far here. I think that, um, Frankly, he, he wasted some of his political capital in the first two years on things like um, constitutional change. And um, and I think that this political capital should have been used to um, tr to try and transform the economy and make those structural changes and push for more um, structural change within the economy. Because, you know, I think that um, and if you know anything about Prime Minister Abe's pa uh, background, he comes from the, the, the part of Japan that was really responsible for the Meiji Restoration is the samurai clan from the Choshu clan, you know, they understood that to um, withstand and to uh, push back against the imperial powers from Europe is that Japan needed a strong economy and it couldn't have, uh, uh, or it needed to have strong security, but it couldn't have strong security without a strong economy. So they uh, instigated and, and they started this, this rapid modernization program, which allowed Japan to transform and translate its economic power into uh, military power, which created a secure, made it more secure, but also created the conditions for uh, its uh, march towards imperialism. Um, 
Prime Minister Abe in 2012, when he became back as Prime Minister, I think he learned those lessons. Um, but his, you know, ideological inclinations towards constitutional um, rest, uh, uh, revision, um, some of his uh, revisionist views about history, I think that he he focused too much on the on the first two years on, on those two two areas rather than focusing on the economy. And once he got over that and started focusing on, um, you know, economic uh, reform and his, I think, really transformative foreign policy, uh, that he really started to accrue momentum. And that momentum has, um, I think, really uh, created a foreign policy legacy that is not only consequential, but I think it will be long lasting and will be inherited not, by, uh, not just by Prime Minister Suga, but by successive prime ministers. Well, I guess that, so then I would ask, let's, let's look forward a little bit at both the domestic and international level. Uh, where does Suga go from here? Is that momentum going to carry forward here, um, or do you think that things are going to get reversed now that Abe has had to step down? So I think that um, the first foreign visit by uh, Prime Minister Suga is really indicative of, of the direction that he's going to go in terms of foreign policy, and that was to Vietnam and Indonesia. And that sends the strongest signal of continuity between prime, former Prime Minister uh, Abe Shinzo's foreign policy and uh, Prime Minister Suga. Prime Minister Abe on his first foreign trip in 2013 was to um, Indonesia, where he talked about these five principles of Japanese foreign policy. And really, it was it was focused on um, democracy, it was focused on free and open societies, it was focused on uh, developing strong relations between Japan and Southeast Asian countries. And um, with Prime Minister Suga visiting uh, Indonesia and Vietnam, uh, yeah, on his first foreign visit, and this is during the COVID-19 pandemic, really sends a strong signal that uh, Suga is interested in continuity, in particular with the free and open Indo-Pacific vision. And you hear that in his domestic speeches and you hear that in his international speeches. Um, and I think that the broader establishment of the uh, Liberal Democratic Party, as well as the other uh, smaller uh, opposition parties, really understand the critical nature of, of the free, free and open Indo-Pacific vision in that it focuses on rules-based community, it focuses on the maritime domain, it focuses on development and trade and economy. And I think growingly it's going to focus on uh, building uh, healthcare infrastructure throughout the Indo-Pacific region, as well as you know, other um, important aspects of development, infrastructure connectivity. And, and I think that um, this is something that there's consensus within the foreign policy establishment in Japan, but there's also consensus in the LDP, and as well as I think relative consensus within the mainstream um, political parties in Japan. That all makes sense to me, but how about at the domestic level? And, and do you think that Suga is the odds-on favorite to, um, to win his, his election coming up in October? Uh, this is a really interesting question. I think that um, you know, right now in Tokyo, we're seeing um, daily COVID rates at about 800 infections a, a day. And I, I know compared to the United States or to the UK, this seems like nothing, right? It's a city of 40 million people. There's only 800 you know, infections a day, right? It doesn't seem like a lot. But um, the Japanese voters are incredibly critical of their politicians. And they see this as, in some ways, as existential and uh, a clearly irresponsible um, uh, um, uh, infection rate that is related to politicians' inactions. And I think that um, Prime Minister Suga will take a big hit, uh, despite the numbers not being that high. And I think that, um, you know, the 
the political um, predators within the LDP will start to see, you know, is it an opportunity for them to, um, you know, hold a vote uh, within the party or to push for re-election and um, see what happens. Um, there are some really strong candidates for uh, a future prime minister, and I'm thinking Kono Taro is one. Um, he's an outspoken um, defense minister today, uh, or he's now the minister of, of, of of, he's the minister for the Ministry of Internal Affairs and Communication, which is responsible for uh, transforming the Japanese economy, for digitization of the Japanese economy. He was a former former minister, a former defense minister. I mean, he has all the pieces of the puzzle to be a very strong prime minister. And above and beyond that, I think that he has that rapport with the international community because of his time in the United States studying at Georgetown University. But there's also other strong candidates, and I think the current former minister, Moltegi, is a, is a strong candidate to be the prime minister, um, uh, as well as others. So I think that they're waiting for uh, the time where they can step in and, 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 and um, really uh, be a prime minister that is consequential, like Prime Minister Abe or Prime Minister uh, Koizumi or those other prime ministers that were in the job for more than four or five years that allowed them to actually not only uh, start a policy, but implement it, execute it, and then uh, can have long-term impact on the domestic in front as well as the international front. Absolutely. Well, we, we've already talked a little bit about Japan and how it's approached China, um, but let, you, you already mentioned Indonesia and Vietnam, and I think those are crucially important. Um, and I think India is the other one here, because it seems obvious to me that if Japan is going to be able to have that balanced relationship with China, um, it can't balance it by itself, just in terms of its demographic heft or, or its numbers. It's going to need to find allies and not just the United States, because the United States is far away. And as we're seeing right now, I, I think self-absorbed with itself and its own domestic political squabbles. So what do you think the most important foreign relate? Would you agree? Well, I guess let me let me rewind that a second. Do you agree with me that India is maybe the most important relationship that Japan has to cultivate? And if not, or, or even if so, what are some overlooked relationships that Japan really needs to strengthen in order to buttress its own position in the region? So let's start with India, and then I'd like to pivot to Southeast Asia, and then lastly to Australia and the EU. So I think when we think about India, the relationship is fundamentally uh, strong uh, at the leadership level, but also at the citizen level. And when you talk to Indian officials and Indian uh, people in the Indian government, they see they see Japan as their future. Um, they see they see Japan as uh, being um, cultural. They see Japan as being modern. They see Japan as uh, being influential and powerful. Um, they see their bilateral relationship is not being uh, securitized. And if you um, know a little bit about uh, World War II, they see Japan as a country that um, really helped liberate them from uh, the British Empire. So they have this unique historical relationship um, and a lack of, of friction that enables them to build the relationship. They also have a common um, challenge, and that, that is China. Um, and I think that uh, both see each other as, um, you know, complementary to um, their economies and to the needs of their societies. So Japan is capital rich. It's very uh, uh, modern. Um, it is interested in, in, in uh, creating alternative production networks and supply chains uh, throughout the Indo-Pacific region, not to replace China, um, but to 
uh, have an alternative supply chain to ensure that another shock to the Chinese-based uh, uh, global production network won't have uh, global reproductions, uh, repercussions again. Um, and India itself sees itself as young, having a big population, uh, being a place where it can uh, receive ODA, Overseas Devel Development Assistance, and foreign direct investment. So in many ways, they see them each other as complementary, uh, as a way to uh, build um, an economically, economically strong partnership. Um, and that part of that partnership um, will include a security element, and we see that through the quadrilateral security dialogue. Um, the question is on the security, dia uh, security dialogue is how will they define and conceptualize their security partnership? Um, for the Indians, they want to focus on the Indian Ocean and they want to focus on um, uh, security as uh, including uh, developmental side, including supply chains, where Japan is looking at security in a broader context in, in a maritime domain that extends far beyond the Indian Ocean to include the South China Seas, the East China Seas, um, uh, you know, the areas that I think Japan really thinks about in terms of its own maritime security environment. So where, where have they gone and where are they moving? Uh, currently, Japan, or India is um, the biggest recipient of Japanese uh, foreign direct investment, uh, as well as ODA, which is very significant. And that says a lot about the confidence in uh, the bilateral relations moving forward. Uh, Japan has already built uh, infrastructure corridors between Mumbai and Kolkata, and they're building a manufacturing uh, plant in northeast eastern New Delhi, uh, which is again trying to recreate some of the, um, the experience that Japan had with, with China in the 1980s and 90s in terms of building a production network and building uh, manufacturing. Um, centers. So Japan is looking to India as, as to be um, the next China to some extent, and I think that's going to be really critical moving forward. Mm -hmm. um, pivoting to Southeast Asia, um, Indonesia and Vietnam, of course, are going to be critical partners. And as I mentioned, Prime Minister Suga visited these two countries. Uh, former Prime Minister Abe also visited these two countries uh, many times during his tenure as Prime Minister. And we're going to see continuing uh, investment in these two giant countries because they have young populations, they're relatively, relatively pro-Japan, um, and they're going to be critical actors in ensuring that ASEAN functions uh, um, in, in a constructive way. And what Japan sees these countries, uh, why Japan sees these countries is important is that um, if Southeast Asia is going to function um, more autonomously, uh, more independently of China, is that Japan needs to help build their economies such that they can uh, have alternative choices to China. So Japan sees these countries as important um, partners to strengthen Southeast Asian uh, countries' strategic autonomy so they can function as a more reliable partner for Japan. Uh, I mentioned Australia, and Australia is a critical partner for Japan, not just because um, you know of, of the synergy between their economies, but because of their alliance relationship with the United States, and this partnership is going to be continue to be critical. Um, lastly is the EU, and again, I mentioned the Japan-EU uh, Economic Partnership Agreement and the Japan-EU um, Asian Infrastructure and Connectivity Initiative. These are both meant to, to, to put Japan and inculcate Japan into large multilateral agreements, but also to bring those countries back into the Indo-Pacific and to understand that uh, the Indo-Pacific is the region that is going to be um, the economic engine for global growth. Um, it's going to be the 
area where uh, the rules of, of trade are going to be shaped for the next uh, generation of, of economies and trade. Uh, but it's also going to be an area of, of instability and challenges. And by bringing those countries into the region through multilateral trade agreements, uh, Japan views these countries as an important counterweight to, um, to China's largesse large uh, within the region. Yeah, it's funny. I tweeted about this the other day where J Japan is encouraging, I think it was Germany, yeah, it was, Japan is encouraging Germany to, to send a, a frigate to help them you know, build a free and prosperous uh, Indo-Pacific. Uh, and I, I was wondering to myself, you know, if, if you if you were an American in 1944, and I told you that Japan would be urging Germany to dispatch its naval forces to the Indo-Pacific to help, uh, you know, make sure that sea lanes change open, I, I wonder what that American would have said based on that. But that's exactly what we're seeing today. Um, I agree with everything you said. I just I thought it was pretty indicative that South Korea didn't make your list, um, and it seems to me that the Japan South Korea relationship um, is the fundamental flaw or the weak point in the U.S. security alliance in the region that people aren't necessarily paying enough attention to. Um, and you can kind of take both sides of that. You can say that South Korea is just not letting bygones be bygones. You can also say, and you alluded to this earlier about some of the ways that Abe maybe squandered his opportunities or has weird revisionist views of his own, uh, that Japan is sort of condescending towards South Korea and takes South Korea for granted in a way that maybe that it shouldn't. Um, so where do you see Japan-South Korea relations? Because I got to think that you know, for Japan, keeping South Korea in the fold, at least strategically, has to be hugely important. But maybe there are political and even economic limitations to, to doing what Japan needs to do to keep them in the fold. Uh, well, 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 out of brevity, this is why I didn't mention South Korea or ASEAN in general. But I think that if we're thinking about a broader Indo-Pacific vision or strategy to, um, again, help China evolve in a more uh, positive and, uh, I guess, um, uh, a more positive direction, South Korea and ASEAN are both critical um, areas and countries that we need to be thinking about. In um, my view is that, again, the Japan-South Korea relationship, as well as the Japan-South Korea-U.S. relationship, is of such a critical partnership that needs to be strengthened within the region. And for the past five years, of course, it's been, um, I think, really uh, fundamentally challenged by domestic politics in Japan and South Korea. And I, and I say this, that both countries have, are responsible for this, but I, I, I guess seeing this from Tokyo, um, you see this clear politicization of um, the relationship with Japan in Seoul by um, the Moon administration. And it's very clear, right? When he came into power, um, he openly said that the Comfort Women Agreement that was signed by um, in September 2015 by Prime Minister Abe, right? Um, you know, a, a, a staunch conservative. Uh, I don't think anybody else could have signed that agreement um, at the time or even today. Um, and then we had the Jisome uh, agreement, the uh, agreement on intelligence sharing between South Korea, Japan, and, and the United States being reneged upon by the South Koreans. And then we had a, an incident where South Korea locked their um, radar on Japanese uh, fighters. Um, we've had so many political challenges between the, the, the two states that um, both countries at the domestic level see um, each other as a threat, which is 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 is. We wouldn't have thought that 10 years ago, um, but today uh, 
the countries have a very dysfunctional relationship. And I think it's going to uh, allow for uh, countries like China to really create a, a wedge in, in a broader Indo-Pacific strategy uh, to uh, shape China's um, evolution. And until Japan starts to have a more um, functional working relationship with South Korea, whether that's bilaterally or within the trilateral context with the United States, that um, it's going to be difficult to um, have a, a cohesive strategy within the region that um, includes South Korea. Yeah, I think you and I are both of the same mind that this is critical and critical for both sides to get this right. Um, but I would put aside sort of what we want from that grand strategic level and say, do you think that's going to happen? Like, where do you think South Korea-Japan relations are going to be five years from now, 10 years from now, based on what's happening today? Do you think there will eventually be a softening and pragmatically both sides will understand that they really need each other if, if they're going to get all of their interests? Or do you think that some of those obstacles and constraints are too strong and might actually allow that wedge to be formed? Well, I think the Moon administration um, is probably the, the fundamental reason why um, Japan is not willing to um, shift its position on, on South Korea at the particular moment. Um, because he's seen as an untrust, uh, untrustworthy partner for the Japanese because of his, his you know, reneging on the South Korean uh, Comfort Women Agreement. Um, and now we have uh, litigation by the Supreme Court in South Korea against Japanese businesses for forced labor. Um, from the Japanese side, these are clear um, clear politicization of the relationship that's making it very difficult to, to build trust. So I think here in Tokyo, policymakers are looking beyond the Moon administration to who will be uh, the next president in South Korea. And uh, from that, they'll try to build a new relationship. And I think the South Koreans felt the same way about Prime Minister Abe, that he wasn't somebody that they could work with. Um, what's interesting, though, you know, we have Prime Minister Suga that's coming in September. And, um, you know, the South Koreans, I don't think have, have has been a proactive with the, with Prime Minister Suga as they could have been in terms of reshaping their dynamics. And again, I think this reflects the um, domestic priorities of the Moon administration to really try to focus on the North Korean issue and reunification and denuclearization. And that you know, you know, working with Japan doesn't win you many points in the, in the South Korean context. And that's the same in in, in the Japanese context. Um, building better relations with South Korea. It doesn't garner a lot of, of political capital in Japan. Rather, it, it pulls away political capital because you know they're viewed as as, as untrustworthy partners. And whether that's true or not, um, you know, we're third parties looking at these particular problems. And I think that we see that uh, both par parties have uh, a responsibility for um, the deterioration in relationship. But um, we need to look at this from how the stakeholders are viewing this and, and try to understand why um, relationships continue to deteriorate. And, you know, I, I see post-moon as an opportunity to, to shape, uh, reshape the relationship. And most likely the U.S. can play a role here. I hope you're right about that. Stephen, I could talk to you all day, but I don't want to take up too much of your time. I'll get you out of here on this. Um, and I asked this of Tony Rinna, who was on the podcast a couple episodes ago, a, a sort of version of this question. But, you know, you're a Canadian who's been living in, in Japan for a while now. Um, what's your favorite Japanese food dish? Uh, I love sea urchin. This summer, I, I spent uh, some time in Niigata on the coast, and I had fresh sea urchin scooped out of uh, a sea urchin body. Uh, it was so delicious. Uh, I couldn't believe the... Uh, um, the briny flavor. Um, it was just wonderful. 
I'm going to have to take your word for that because I, I don't know if I can get into that. So it, it tastes like a briny, salty kind of thing? Like, a, what would you compare it to? Uh, officially, it, 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 <laughs> um, it, it, it it's, um, it's buttery, but briny at the same time. Mm. And it just melts in your mouth. It's just a, a, a really uh, exotic taste. <laughs> All right. Well. Stephen, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Uh, we'll have to have you back on uh, maybe after elections next October in Japan and, and see whether things have changed or not. It'd be great, Jacob. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, I wish you the best in 2021. And uh, let's hope that the vaccines get out as soon as possible. Amen to that. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, if you have feedback on this episode or on any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in and I love hearing from listeners, so please don't be shy. Uh, you can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Perchspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice a week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.